you put film in the camera, right? I, I didn't put it in. What? Put it in, put it in, Joe. Get the mic ready. Go, go, go. was a clip from J.J. Abrams' Super 8. It's the first original film that he wrote and directed. Uh, I guess his first original movie work, I guess I should say, since he's done a lot of television. And if you've been following trailers or anything like that, it's really been shrouded in mystery for a long time. But what I can tell you if you haven't seen it is that it's basically a throwback to 80s, early 80s adventure films like E.T., which we'll be talking about later. Uh, early Spielberg sort of family-oriented sci-fi. And uh, what I can tell you is that it's about a, uh, a gaggle of kids getting into trouble in 1979 America, any town USA, and uh, something goes amiss at a train yard and while they're trying to make a, a zombie film. And uh, they decide to exploit it while also trying to figure out just what the hell is going on. Maybe, that's, maybe we'll start there. Uh, Rick... You feel strongest out of anyone, I think, on this movie. So I'm going to let you start things off. Okay, yeah. So um, it's no secret that I love this movie. Um, but, you know, like a lot of people complain, you know, when we, when we reviewed movies like uh, X-Men or Thor or uh, even movies like Transformers, uh, sometimes we seem a little too harsh on movies. And as much as I loved Super 8, I mean, this is a film review show. And if we're not going to be critical, then what's the point in doing a film review show, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think like, like I agree with most of the negative reviews I've read, including Simon's, which is fairly positive, but you still like had a few nitpicks with the movie, Simon. Mm -hmm. And I actually agree with what everybody has to say about it. But the thing is, it's like I love this movie. And I think one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is because I actually love it for its faults. And uh, I wrote up this like huge article. It's basically uh, eight eight reasons to love or hate Super Eight, and I'm going to post it on the website. Everyone can check it out. Um, and I think I start off by talking about how the movie how the movie comes together in the small scale and the big scale. Like for example, the CGI rendered train crash is one of the most visually arresting explosive action scenes in any recent memory. I mean, it's spectacular. And especially when you watch it on IMAX, like I think you all watch it on IMAX, has did I. And the sound design, just these, the, these special effects are incredible. And although it's perhaps 
the most exciting scene within the film. Not the best scene, but probably the most exciting scene. I think it's also the most problematic. Because, okay, first of all, the scene lacks believability. I mean, in one frame, we see the truck driver, you know, who derails the train. We see his truck explode. And five minutes later, the six kids walk up to the vehicle only to discover that the man is somehow still alive. And even worse, you know, then he points a gun at the kids. And then the kids, like, escape and they run away. And what do they do? They go home and they forget the whole situation. And one of them goes and he takes a bath. And they just sleep away the the event. And to me, that didn't make any sense. Like a bunch of kids, a bunch of teenagers, when when you witness something so big and so disastrous like a train wreck, you're not going to just go home and sleep it off, right? And then there, there's questions that come to mind, you know, like why exactly was the military um, transporting this dangerous alien being from one city to the next city on a train, and even better, why was there no military personnel on that train to protect the creature? Like, so there's a lot of like questions mm-hmm. <laughs> that that spring to mind. A, a lot of those I didn't even think of, really. Well, there's a lot of questions that I thought of, uh, which spring to mind when you leave the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but but that wasn't really my problem with the movie. That like a lot of people had a lot of problems with the uh, I guess the unanswered questions, right? But the problem is is that the train, and I'm really going to stick to the whole big scale, small scale thing right now. But the problem is that the train crash, it like you know, it's it's fantastic. It, it grabs the full attention of the audience. Everybody wakes up, and everyone's attention is fully on screen, and you're kind of blown away. But the problem is, is the film never really even comes close to matching that set piece later on, mm-hmm. and I think. That's why a lot of people are really disappointed with the climax of the film. And uh, so that's like one problem I had with the film. It, it, it's, it seemed like uh, a sequence like that of that big of a scale should have been saved for the end of the movie and not so much at the beginning. Because mm-hmm. uh, for me, everything that happened on a smaller scale was great. But once they ratchet up the effects and the action, nothing either seemed to make sense you know, specifically, for example, there's this one scene towards the end of the movie when the whole suburban town is turned into like a war zone without any explanation. And I didn't understand what, that. That was, you know, as much as I love this movie, that was one of the worst scenes in any movie of 2011. Like, why exactly were the tanks firing away they at the buildings? That. Yeah, they they're uh, essentially because the uh, okay, we're 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 gonna discuss plot now because it's sort of a necessity. Because the creature is messing with like electrical currents, all the tanks, etc., they're all misfiring. So they're Wait, just right. shooting. Even the machine, but even the machine guns are misfiring. And and what exactly was the military firing at? Because like the town was evacuated. So even the, the still the troops were running around firing at. No, no, they were not what. firing. They the all of their weaponry was going off by itself. Okay. Well, I mean, just just to end my my like little rant here is that the bottom line is when it came to like the big special effects, those weren't the moments that made the movie for me. What made the movie for me was when it was more on a personal level, Mm -hmm. when it dealt with the kids making the film within the film. The good news is, is that the special effects are state of the art and they're never overused. Like, you know, you're never disappointed with the effects like I was with a movie like Thor and X-Men First Class. And I can't say the same for Super 8. I thought the effects were great. I agree. Um, honestly, I, th- I think you and I agree on most things. I think it's just the degree to which we feel those things. I mean, I, I definitely think that the movie within a movie aspects, these kids sort of, they're a little film crew, and they, they're working on this zombie film called The Case, 
which one of them is the director of, a uh, kid we do, unfortunately don't spend quite enough time with. And uh, those scenes uh, are all great, especially once they get um, Elle Fanning on board. And her character is... She she never really talks about whether or not she's... Uh, she, she, we, don't, we don't know if she's really an aspiring actress or not, but we do know that she has natural talent. It helps that Elle Fanning is also a really good actress, as it turns out. And um, I would say that... I think the best scene in the film is actually her first scene as an actress, which is actually right before we get the, uh, like you said, quite spectacular uh, early set piece. Um, by the way, my only problem with that set piece in terms of, in terms of believability was that they all make it out alive. Yeah, I, I just had a hard time believing that none of them got squashed. Or well, yeah, and I totally very... agree. That, that's another problem with the train sequence. But yeah, like, you know, Super 8 is at best when it's focused on the group of kids. And it's at its worst when it tries to spice up a simple story with increasingly meaningless set action pieces. Um, but, but, you know, I did love this movie, so I was, it wasn't a deal breaker for me. Fair enough. Justine, I, now, Justine is kind of an interesting case here because she's not, a, you're an avowed non-fan of Spielberg and anything this movie might be sort of taking its cues from. Yeah, I don't like 80s movies that are nice and happy at all. There we go. So how did you feel about where this movie went? Um, I'll be honest, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But I do think it's pretty inconsistent. Some scenes really work, while some really misfired. And the final act for me did not come together, and I really kind of got lost. Not really in the plot, or like lost, like it, I couldn't follow it anymore. But I was just I lost interest. I'm going to be honest. You're talking about the third act of the movie. Yeah, the final act. Yeah, and I think I know why. Tell me um, why. And, and it's actually, I'm, and this is funny because like this is one thing that Spielberg does so good and you don't like Steven Spielberg, is in classic Spielberg films, the fantastical elements serve as a catalyst to explore the family dynamic, like the budding romance, the father and son issues, the test of friendships, like anything that's going on within the characters. And Spielberg's movies, like, you know, you think of like E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, et cetera, et cetera. They had classically structured narratives whose science fiction elements felt felt like organically related to the rest of the story. Like mm-hmm. the, the the special effects, like the aliens or whatever, they were they, they they moved the story along, you know? And E.T. Close Encounters, like the audience and the main characters actually cared about the aliens, especially in a movie like E.T. And the problem with Super 8, its creature seems like basically a pure MacGuffin. Like it's only added to advance the plot. Yeah. And that to me was the biggest letdown of Super 8. Yeah. And I think when they try to pull the whole, uh, I don't want to say E.T., they kind of try the whole E.T. thing where the alien is sympathetic in some way. I think it, it just doesn't work for that very reason because it's not integrated. They kind of throw that in there. And it's never really integral to um, the way that the characters evolve or the way the plot moves. They kind yeah. of use it as a throwaway to kind of get a w- around certain plot points and kind of move towards an end. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel organic. That, that being said, there, there is a lot that I, that, I, that I do like about the movie. It's funny because, Rick, you're skewing negative, though you loved it, and I'm going to skew positive, though I was, felt kind of iffy. Um, I mean, it is a nice contrast to recent blockbusters in a few ways. First of all, it's refreshing to have a blockbuster that's not strictly based on anything, although it is sort of beholden to that lineage of Spielberg films. 
Uh, it, it's nice to have a, a set of original characters, some of whom are, are really great, um, like uh, like Elle Fanning's character. And I mean, she, and actually, she gets. Uh, there's another great scene that she's in that I that I really enjoyed. Another example of how the sort of character-driven scenes were the best, wherein uh, the the main character, uh, the uh, the Joel Courtney character, is the makeup artist on the set, an occasional actor, although he's a terrible actor. And um, and I love the scenes between him and Elle Fanning when he's doing her zombie makeup. And there's one in particular where she, where he's teaching her how to be a zombie. And that I thought was just a great little scene. How am I supposed to be a zombie? Oh, um, uh, pretty much just be a lifeless ghoul with no soul, dead eyes, scary. Did you ever have Miss Mullen for English? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like her, but hungry for human flesh. Like she wants to turn somebody into a zombie. Because that's kind of what zombies do. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I also like the fact that J.J. Abrams made the main character and not the director of the movie within the movie. Yeah. I like how he made him like the special effects makeup like guy, like a props guy, because Abrams is such a technical, like, you know, geek. He's one of those directors that really gives credit where credit is usually not given to his mm-hmm. like crew. And I like the fact that he wasn't the director, it was Charles instead. But, uh, I, I, you know, one lesson that I, I think Abrams learned from Spielberg has its, roots, has its roots in, like, Jaws. And I'm talking about the decision to shoot the monster sequences mostly off screen or in shadows, at least for the first half of the picture. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of like that. You know, when it comes to the monster, I've always said less is more. And sometimes it's, it, you feel more tension. There's more suspense when you don't necessarily see the, the creature. But the I, and the thing is, I just don't know if it worked for most people. Because the thing is, like you say, I'm being a little negative on this movie, and I love this movie. But I'm trying to look at it from like a different point of view. Because like I have a lot of friends who are pissed off at me right now because I recommended them to go see this picture, and they hated <laughs> it, hated it. Like Mike Waldman, one of our co-hosts, who's not doing a show today, he absolutely hates this movie. He thought it was one of the worst films he's seen this year. Okay, but you know, like you think of some of the scenes, like the attack on the bus recalls the T-Rex assault in Jurassic Park, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of moments in this in this film that recalls various films from like Steven Spielberg uh, when it comes to the actual action set pieces like, you know, Jaws, Duel, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's funny though because I'm not really sure if I actually like the decision this time around because usually I complain that I don't want to see so much of the monster and this time I kind of have an op- opposite reaction because with Jaws – it wasn't so much that it was a choice that Steven Spielberg felt the necessity to not show Bruce the shark. It's more like at the time he didn't have the special effects and the shark, Bruce, actually looked too fake to put on screen for too long of a period of time, right? But the difference between Jaws and Super 8 is that here it's a decision to actually keep the creature out of the shot, like to keep him in the shadows. Um, and... 
I kind of felt a little distracting at times because like when you're watching Jaws, okay, first of all, Jaws, the idea of keeping the shark off screen feels very organic to the picture because it's a shark underwater, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like no one's thinking like, oh, maybe it's an octopus going around killing people. Like everybody knows what a shark looks like. It's like when you watch, um, a, a, you know, um, a serial killer movie or a whodunit, and you know it's a, you know, the killer is clearly a human being. You just don't know who it is, but you're not trying to figure out what it looks like. And it kind of works to its disadvantage with Super Eight because at one point you kind of become a little frustrated with his deliberate decision to hide the monster because you you start thinking like, is it because the effects are going to be bad? Is it because I'm going to be let down? Am I going to be disappointed? And so. At the beginning of the movie, at the start of the film, I found it, it it really worked well. But about the midway point, I was like, okay, enough already. Let's see the damn monster. Well, I, and I, sorry, and I, I just think that like – and again, I love this movie and this wasn't a deal breaker for me. But I think that a lot of people were disappointed when they saw the monster because it looked a little too much like Cloverfield. Well, I, I think the, the hiding the monster for so long uh, could have been really great. I think it's sort of it it that's sort of indicative of a larger problem with the movie, which is that it tries some really admirable stuff, but for me it didn't quite come off. For instance, if like hiding the monster and then showing it later is cool, but the problem is it undercuts what happens with the monster later because because it's been hidden so long, it's a little weird when later in the film they sort of go the sympathetic route, like yeah, like the whole scene. There's too much going on in that one scene. It's the character. It's the quote unquote big reveal. And they also go for, oh, we it, he's a misunderstood monster. I do like that they hide the creature for the most part, but I think a more gradual reveal would have been better. I feel like it felt somewhat haphazard. It did not feel... Like, you could tell that they were trying to show a little more and more, but I think they did it in a way that wasn't beneficial, partly because, no, you don't really have a good idea of even the shape of the monster. There's kind of hints to it, but I think if he had found something else distinct about this alien creature to focus on rather than the face or something that felt more like easier to grasp on a visual level, then maybe that final scene would have worked a little better and he could have got away with hiding the monster for a little longer. And and that, that's a classic problem that J.J. Abrams has. It's like his little like trope i guess like it's he incorporated it into like the tv series lost which is a tv series i completely hated because the end results were horrible but he calls it the mystery box in other words prolong the mystery as long as possible but sometimes it works against you i don't think it works generally i think like if we're gonna think of alfred hitchcock he thought the opposite effect that you the audience knows more than the characters in the film he's like you can have a film where you don't know there's a bomb under the desk and then in the final minutes of the film, you find out, holy shit, everything's going to blow up. Or you fa- tell the audience right away, there's a bomb under the desk, but nobody in the film knows it. Yeah. And that often creates far more effective suspense when the audience knows more than the characters in the film. Because you are, especially if sympathetic characters like this one, you are rooting for them. If Maybe if we had known a bit more about the alien monster creature, the suspense or the scares would have felt less forced and we could have gotten maybe we could have he could have gotten away with a bit more in terms of kind of pushing the boundaries of credibility well well in terms of suspense and the scares the problem is is that a lot of those scenes 
revolved around unnamed, unknown like characters, like just characters that came and went. It didn't actually revolve around the kids. We get one sequence sequence where the two, the three of the main kids actually encounter the alien, and there's this one scene which I loved where the alien picks up Joe. And he's holding him in the air and you see him breathing into his hair and his hair is blowing. And it reminds you of like King Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that moment. But the problem is, you know, you know, like Spielberg, you get the themes of childlike resistance. You get the uh, to authority, right? You get the, um, the compassion to like the aliens. It's all evident there. But the difference, once again, between E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind is it never quite blossoms the way those movies do simply because we are not emotionally invested in the monster itself. Again, the monster is just advancing the plot, but it's not adding to the heart of the movie. I think for me there were a couple of things going on at once. This is one of those films, and I don't want to sound like, oh, the the, the food's terrible in such small portions – but this is one of those weird situations where I really felt like this is a movie that could have really benefited from another 20, 30 minutes. Uh, I agree. Especially I felt I really, really could have used more time at the beginning just to, just to a spend more time with the kids normally before uh, at the beginning of the film tragedy befalls uh, the Joel Courtney character, his mother dies, which of course introduces daddy issues. Um, I would have really liked to have spent some time with the kids before then. I would have really liked to have spent some more time with Kyle Chandler's character in general. Um, he plays uh, Joel Courtney's dad, who's the deputy sheriff. And um, he disappears for like a huge chunk of the movie. And that's a little disappointing. Um, just, I would have loved to have all those re- relationships strengthened. And I'd love to have known, love to have get, got, gotten to know the other kids better because really they end up just kind of as types which is too bad because I felt like if we'd really cared for them, like it would have been well, more suspenseful. I think we did care for them. I think that's the problem. I think those scenes with the kids were so great, so fantastic. Like some of the best scenes we've seen in any movie this year that you just longed for more. Like like in terms of the opening, like I love the opening shot. You know, when you have the sign that says safety first, 784 days since the last accident and a workman ascends the ladder and he changes a number to one, like right away it grabs you. You understand what's going on and you get that that opening prologue, but th- it's really effective. Like it's a, it's, a, it's an effective scene because you get a lot of information. It establishes the emotional stakes at large from the beginning of the movie and, you know, you understand like – that Joe is just not running around town making a zombie film with his friends for fun. Like he, it's, it's more about him just doing it for fun. He's looking for a way to escape, you know, because he's grieving because his mom dies. And also, eventually, you get to understand that he wants to meet this girl. Like he's had a, a crush on this girl. And I thought that opening scene, as short as it was, was was a great way to establish who these characters were and what they were going through. I, I think the the bottom line is those scenes, like the kids, like you know, like Simon, you said when when they first set up that that opening shot, uh, that opening scene when they're doing their little Super Eight movie at the at, before the train crash. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best moments in the film. One of the things I really liked about this movie is that they don't give you scientific explanations that at the end of the day don't make any sense anyway. So it's just a waste of time. Like everything's kind of left in a mystery, even at the end of the movie. Like you're not really sure where the alien came from or what experiments they were doing with the alien or what exactly the alien could or couldn't do. And I mean, you you don't know where they were taking the alien. You got just bits and pieces of information, but that's the kind of information that if you were living in that town and you were witnessing all that, you would only get bits and pieces of the information anyway. So Mm -hmm. you would go the rest of your life not really knowing the whole story. And I hate it when movies 
try to over explain things and it doesn't make any sense anyway. So I kind of appreciated that ambiguity. ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one thing that I really loved about the movie too was the setting because like there was – I was reading this one review where they were bitching and complaining about like what's the point in putting in 1979 and I thought that was incredible. Uh, first of all, I've always said that if I'm going to make like a horror film – not that this is a horror film but whatever – I would always want my my horror film or sci-fi film to be set in the 70s or early 80s, before the days of the internet and, and YouTube and Twitter and cell phones. cell phones. And, you know, I don't want my characters to run to, like, the computer to Google, like, the past history of the serial killer or whatever. Um, but what's so great about this is, you know, it's, it's the writer-director, J.J. Abrams. He teams up with producer Steven Spielberg. It's a period sci-fi thriller. It's set in the 70s, 1979 to be exact. And this was like a pivotal period of movie history in Hollywood, at least, because this is the, this is like a few years be- prior to 1979. Steven Spielberg directed the first ever summer blockbuster, Jaws. Then he follows it up with Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T., which this movie is clearly heavily inspired by. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, J.J. Abrams went in. He said that this is an homage to his producer. You know, and it's the kind of high-profile movie that we don't see anymore. It's an old-fashioned summer good feel movie that doesn't rely. And this is what I love about this movie: it doesn't rely on sequels, spin-offs, reboots, adaptations. It doesn't rely on 3D. It, it's not a comic book movie. It's not a comic tie-in. You know, you don't need a superhero to sell the movie at the box office, and more importantly, you don't need a big name actor to sell the movie. You know, that's what I loved about Super 8. Like, you don't need to put in Brad Pitt in order for people to go see the movie. Like, it's a love letter to basically anyone that has a passion for filmmaking because within the film, you get the kids that are making their movie in Super 8. And and I think it's also a way for today's generation to kind of get a hint of what it was like for their parents to go to the movie theater in the 70s and 80s and experience what would have been the next Steven Spielberg offering. Maybe because that's why they, I don't like those movies. My dad doesn't like those films. He hated the 70s and 80s cinema. I don't relate to it at all. I just, like, I understand what you're saying. And I know, many people I know loved this movie. I think my friend Tim, who you guys both know and who have helped us on the show, he said he described this movie as a movie he wanted to cut up in little pieces and eat for dinner every day. So, like, <laughs> this is... If you have a lot of nostalgia for that period, be it through film or through experiences, your own experiences, or you kind of want to look back and relate to a time that your parents experienced, maybe you'll love this film. If you didn't, or if you don't, um, maybe it won't work so well. But I do agree with with Rick that all those things you mentioned, that it's not a sequel, it's not a comic book movie. Which is um, nice. It's not in 3D. All those things are all The all, IMAX all great. did look very nice. Uh, yeah. What did you guys think of the lens flares? Um, <laughs> I, I, th- I saw this movie twice, and the first time I saw it, I didn't mind the lens flares, but the second time I saw it, because I was thinking about the lens flares, I, I did think it became distracting. One of the main reasons why is because those lens flares appear at times when they don't belong, like when they're in the underground cave tunnel that's supposed to be pitch dark black. You know, so he, some of them just, were nice. Like he, he, yes, it is, but he overuses it. That's yeah. the problem, and that's the thing. Like um, they were all over Star Trek, but that was okay because that was the future. 
Yeah, it's no, true. it's just I didn't mind the lens flares. I just thought he overused them. And you guys got to remember that those lens flares, even before he made Super 8, that was inspired from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. But going back to what Justine said, though, I disagree with you, Justine. I don't think you need to have uh, nostalgia for like Spielberg movies or movies of the late 70s or early 80s because like the whole thing is the movie's called Super 8. The Super 8 camera is the spotlight of the movie. Like it's an artifact of the past that filmmakers like Spielberg, like Scorsese, like J.J. Abrams, and a lot of filmmakers that you like and dislike, you know, if it wasn't for that Super 8 camera, the world might have not, not have ever known who these guys were because they all got their start with the Super 8 camera. So that's what I kind of liked about it. Like, I, I like the fact that, you know, it, the kids within the movie are making a movie with a Super 8 camera, and I don't think you got to love and or, or even have seen any Spielberg films to kind of, like... I don't know, feel passionate about it if you're a wannabe filmmaker because maybe at one point in time you're one of those kids holding a camera trying to make maybe. a movie with your friends, like a zombie film. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's all definitely true. I mean, I mean for me, the, the movie lives or dies by, uh, by the actors, really, because, the, because this, the CGI stuff winds up being... I mean, it's well done, but the, the monster stuff kind of winds up being sort of rudimentary. And luckily for us, Abrams is a, is a really strong director of actors. And he proves here to be a really strong director of child actors, which is a good skill to have. And uh, the kids are all great. Kyle Chandler's great. Noah Emmerich isn't there very much, but he's always good for a scowling face. And uh, because of that, I think it winds up being quite watchable and quite enjoyable for the most part. Well, it's not only so much that he's good with actors. It's just that he, he, you know, he's one of those directors that realizes one simple rule that actors come before action. And without you know, those good characters, the action is meaningless and there won't be any suspense because you're just not going to care. I mean, yeah, it helps that, you know, the kids are smart, likable, nerdy 12-year-old kids, some of which maybe we can relate to when we were younger. But, you know, a lot of people don't like the Goonies because the kids are so loud and they're so obnoxious. And one thing I really like, and I love the Goonies, by the way, but one thing that I really like about these group of kids is that they're a little more dynamic. Like, they're different. They're not all in top volume. They all have different styles. You know, one's a little more reserved. One's like a pyromaniac. One's like a little bossy. Uh, and I'm not just talking about their physical presence. I'm talking about their personality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the kids were a lot of fun you know, to watch on screen. And, and again, going back to Abrams, like, you know, one of those directors that understands character is more important than action. Like there's even one scene where the kids that are making a movie within a movie, like Charles, the director turns to Joe and he says like, Joe's like, wow, that's like such a great zombie kill. You're going to win the, the, the contest for your short film contest. And he's like, no, I'm not. That's just a cool special effect. We still need a story, a real story. We need a good script. Production it's kind values. Of like, yeah, production values. It's kind of like it's kind of like that was J.J. Abrams speaking, and that's why I kind of mm-hmm. feel like this movie is really personal in some way. Like, yeah, it's an homage to like Steven Spielberg movies, but I still see a personal touch throughout the film. And um, you know, that brings me to the the the. Um, the question here, like the reoccurring argument that I always constantly hear or all week long I've been hearing is does Super 8 suffer from postmodern condition? Is it like art imitating art? Because like filmmakers nowadays, let's face it, at least in Hollywood, they're not really making personal movies anymore. And that's one of my problems with summer blockbusters. You know, as much as I love Spider-Man movies and Captain America movies and whatnot, it seems like filmmakers are just replicating the filmmakers uh, that they grew up watching, like the movies that they grew up watching. 
And, you know, you think of someone like Quentin Tarantino, right? Like his movies are steeped in pop culture. And, 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 you know, he's clearly influenced by like a hundred million directors and he tries to pile as much in as he can into the movie. And it's all you see nowadays. Now with Tarantino, I think it works very well because you can see, at least I think you can feel the passion in every single frame of a Tarantino well, film. You I can think- clearly see that this man loves movies. And so I guess the question is, is Super 8, you know, it, does it, is it something personal or is it just simply pastiche? I think what, like, I think for Tarantino, why he succeeds in what he does is because he has a modernist aesthetic. He is, yes, his films are, con- like, the content and um, to a certain extent, the style is postmodern, but his actual aesthetic is modernist. This film, I think, veers a fine line because it is clearly an homage to Spielberg in many ways, but it is also a film that is clearly a J.J. Abrams baby thing. I don't know. It's, like it's, some... Yeah, it's clearly his thing. But yeah, it's... no, I see what you mean. It's an ambiguous film, and I think potentially interesting on that level. I, I honestly am not sure if I would say that it is a victim, another victim of the postmodern feeling of everything has been done before so let's redo it again in a sort of metacritical way i don't think yeah. he goes that way he his is far more nostalgic yeah i mean i didn't i never got the feeling like he was trying to reinvent the wheel in any way like i didn't feel like he was trying to update old spielberg or it, criticize it, it or criticize it he was trying to recreate it and it's not no he but he did and he didn't i think the film is distinctly um 21st century in style i think that a lot of it a, a lot of it yes is completely indebted to uh, Spielberg or and filmmakers like him. But at the same time, the way he uses special effects, the way he uses the camera, and even the way he depicts children is is not does not quite fit in the era that he's depicting. And mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing. I think that he well, does update it successfully. He creates something that is clearly nostalgic, but nostalgic from the point of view of the 21st century i agree and is his name roger roper the guy who used to co-host with roger ebert richard roper same thing richard roper sorry he called it a cinematic version of a cover band <laughs> and i i don't know I, I i don't really completely agree with his review but I, I i do think yes it overloads the adventure with a lot of homages to steven spielberg like it basically plays out like spielberg's greatest hits but there's a lot of influences that people just don't catch on because they're not so obvious. Like, you know, of course, you know, there's George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. You get a bit of the Goonies. You get Poltergeist. You get War Games. Um, you get War of the Worlds. You get, mm-hmm. I mean, there's even a, a nod to the uh, TV show Twilight Zone because there's an episode in the Twilight Zone called Walking Distance. You know, mm-hmm. like there's, there's a, there's a, you know, throwing some Iron Giant, you know, uh, Phantasm. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie, aside from just Steven Spielberg, up until, you know, even movies like Cloverfield. Uh, but but the thing is, I, I really do feel, I really do think that this movie feels very authentic. Like, it, you really do see it coming from the heart of J.J. Abrams in two different ways. You see a bit of him as a kid, as a child, like wanting to grow up like Steven Spielberg and making these movies, and therefore he does it. But then you also get, like I said, the kids within the movie making a movie. And I think there's a lot of prob- there's probably a lot of J.J. Abrams in that character of Joe. 
And, um, you know, like, I, I think that's why the movie basically works. Like, whatever, despite whatever problems people have with this film, like, you can nitpick as much as you want. Uh, I think it's his most personal work, even if it's structured in another filmmaker's style, which is very weird. Because, like, that's that's the thing about J.T. Abrams. Like, he's a craftsman, right? Like, he's so good at producing, like, movies, like, and, and giving you, like, great special effects and making stuff like Star Trek. But he still doesn't have his own distinct style. Well, well, I mean, if you look at what he's done so far, his first two films were franchise movies, essentially, although Star Trek was also sort of a reboot. He's very skilled at taking stuff that people already recognize and tweaking it a little bit. And, and in, yeah. in the case of Star Trek, I think really successfully. Uh, I don't really remember MI3 that well. Um, and I think for his first original venture, he does something kind of similar but I, I do think that for a first, you know, in a way, it's kind of a first feature because it, it's it's not something that it's not a pre-existing franchise. So for that, I, I do think he he gets a few things wrong, but I'm still curious to see what he does next. And I also think that he really captures that sense of childhood wonder that we used to get from like those late 70s, early 80s movies, like that sense of adventure with a bunch of kids that you see in movies like Stand By Me and The Goonies. And I think people really miss it. Um, you know, but the, the bottom line is like some people look, some people like super eight, some people love it. And some people just think it's boring. And I can't argue if you, if you think the movie is boring, it's, it's like me going to watch a comedy and, and I don't laugh. Right. But I, I think the bigger question is, is it artificial or is it personal? And a lot of people are just saying it's an, it's artificial. Like it's just like a copy of like anything that Spielberg's done before. And I don't really think so. Like, there are moments where he uses the exact same shots that Steven Spielberg has used in his older movies. But look at all the movies we've had come out in the past 10 years and all the filmmakers. They've all done the exact same thing. And no one's been like, you know, like crucified for doing it. But mm -hmm. for some reason, I don't know, he is just because it's a little obvious that it's so-and-so movie because those movies were so mainstream. Well, I mean, every, every filmmaker pretty much does it. I mean, I'm sorry. The, t the Tree of Life, Terrence Malick pretty much like was replicating stuff that he saw from Stan Brakhage movies. You know, mm -hmm. he used clips and scenes, scenes from other experimental short films. Everybody does it to some degree. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, if it's a question of, is it artificial or is it personal? I think it's some of both. And I mean, like, like you say, the, the filmmaker stuff to me strikes, strikes me as personal. Some of the monster stuff seems a little carbon copied from some, from some other stuff. But I think that people have it out for Abrams, maybe a little bit more than he deserves. I think in terms of people who make mainstream blockbusters, he's definitely one of the better ones. Yeah, uh, and I totally agree. I think people do have it out for him, and I'm not really sure why. Well, because but, of Lost, probably. Although that wasn't yeah, actually maybe. his fault, because he didn't stick around for the part that got really sucky, so I hear. Yeah, but but like I said, I love this movie, but I, I do recognize its faults. Like, you know, apparently, like, J.J. Abrams says that creatures intended to work as a metaphor for something deeper. Like, and I'm not own. really too sure if he was successful. No, he wasn't. In trying to get out that message, because, like, it should again, have been more obvious. There's subtext that's really ambiguous does not work in a film like this. Let's no. face it. He throws in a not lot of, like, ups references and... um hints at like not hints like there's clearly family relationship issues at work here but what the monster is meant to either represent or what it's supposed to act as a catalyst to change is not clear enough 
It's not clear at all. I'd say. I mean, unless the only unless there's something incredibly vague, like letting go. Yeah, whatever, whatever it was meant to represent. I mean, it was definitely incredibly vague. Like, like there's the whole idea of like you know, um, like overcoming the fear of something you're unknown of, but you don't really get the sense of that in Super Raid because again, like they don't really run into the monster until like about three quarters into the film, and that scene lasts about five minutes. And all we do, all we get is basically a homage to King Kong and then the creature leaves the kids behind. And then, um, you know, there's the whole idea of letting go of the past. And I guess that kind of like comes together in the end when a necklace flies away towards like the water tower. But I'm just not really sure if it was earned. Like, did did J.J. Abrams really earn that emotional reaction from us? Like, did the theater get dusty for you guys or did you just not care? Yeah, and and the thing is, that is such a hard moment to pull off, the whole necklace thing, because if you don't prepare for it, it's just incredibly corny, and I think, for me, it landed on the corny side of things. Yeah, it was pretty corny. Um, I love the look of the movie. I love the cinematographer. Yeah, Um, it's really nice. I liked a a few of the shots that were not quite lens flurry. Like, you know, there's that shot, not like in the first half of the film, where something is reflecting... And you have two shots of the of the boy at once, yes. kind of overlap. That was beautiful. Like that's like yes. a lens flare ish type thing, like a mistake that works well because a lens flare that, is traditionally a mistake. The lens flares are mis- supposed to be mistakes, but they're not mistakes, and so they feel awkward sometimes. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Well, what's weird about this guy Larry Fong is. Um, like he he's I know he was a cinematographer on The Watchmen and uh, Sucker Punch because I know he usually works with Zack Snyder, and um, I thought he really finally got a chance to really show his skills in this movie because let's face it, Sucker Punch, I mean it's mostly like CGI and and even like The Watchmen, like here he really had a chance to show what he can do. Uh, what did you guys think of the score? I thought the score was fine. I mean I I didn't think it was mind. I mean there was an early theme or something that I thought was quite memorable that didn't really come up again. Uh, other than that, it was pretty textbook Giacchino. Like it, it sounded a lot like his work on Lost and on other films, especially yeah, it, the especially the high strings sort of foreboding scenes. I I think it sounds a lot better than John Williams' score, which we'll talk about when we get to ET. But I think John Williams just tries a little too hard to. Th- I don't I don't know I don't like overbearing scores in general, and the scores I like I like really weird stuff. Like the weirder the score, the more I'll probably like it. So I don't like this whole manipulative, cute thing that all these '80s Spielberg films have. Except for, I like I like Star Wars music. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I like that whole part when uh, the comets thing. You know what I'm talking about? No. Asteroids. That asteroid theme or something. No idea. That's pretty cool. Um, and I don't really like Star Wars. So good job, John Williams. <laughs> Although John Williams' best work was with Robert Altman. I, uh, I, 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 we're getting a little bit long in the tooth on this one. Yeah, let's talk about my favorite movie ever. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Do you have yeah, anything more you want to say, Rick? Despite whatever you think about the ending, whether you think it works or it doesn't work, that's not really the ending of the movie because the ending is actually the short film within the film playing during a credit yes. sequence. Which, is which awesome. was great. So yeah, great. and that, that was the best, that was the highlight of the whole entire movie. And, and I'm glad they ended with that note because... To me, it was really the kids that made the movie, and if it just ended with the necklace flying into like the space, uh, into like the the water tower, mm-hmm. I would have been slightly disappointed. I, but because they had that short film played during the credit sequence, I walked out with a smile. 
I, I like I said, I, I think it's I think it's well. First of all, if we're comparing it to the years blockbusters, no comparison. Although I actually really like Source Code. I really like X Men a lot. Ah, that's too bad. Um, <laughs> I think this is way better than, than it's better than X Men, but I like X Men. This better. is better than all the superhero films that w- that have been released and will be released. I think. Although I know you you will contend that Rick, but I I don't have high hopes for the the other superhero films this year. Wait, wait. Uh, so you think that this will be better than the superhero movies coming up? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't have any high hopes for those at all. Well, look, like right now, um, Super 8 is on my top three films of the year so far. Cool. Which is not saying a lot because it's been a bad That's year. That's why it's a top three. I'm not going to recommend anyone to go see it because I already got yelled at. <laughs> Do what you will. I'll recommend it. I think it's. I think if you if you think you'll enjoy it, you probably will. And if you like, uh, if, if if you're if you're prone to, to going out to the movies, why not see something that's kind of decent? And I won't recommend it because all the people I know who would like it have already seen it. And everyone <laughs> else who I know who hasn't seen it will hate it. All right. So so I'm the only one recommending Super 8. That's interesting. Yeah, all but right. I would like I'm not recommending this. Yeah. yeah, but I love it more than you. I'm just not recommending it. Fair enough. He's okay, saving himself. We, we got to move on. We got to move on. So we're going to play another clip and here's some music. When we come back, we're going to talk about... Uh, one of the film's chief inspirations, Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Remember when old man Woodward took your electronic football? Yeah, he put it in the dungeon and never gave it back. The, the dungeon? That trailer Woodward keeps in the school parking lot. Dr. Woodward? Dr. Woodward? <laughs> Map of the contiguous United States. What's the writing? Dates and times. Yes, what's this line? Just schedule for the train. <laughs> what the heck? Oh, oh my god, oh my god. Holy shit. Who are you? Dr. Woodward, it's me. Charles Kasnick, fourth period. You've been in an accident. You're gonna be okay. Oh, holy shit! Oh, holy shit. They will kill you. Do not speak of this, or else you and your parents will die. 